0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast every week. We take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, our data point this week is 3.4%. That is the unemployment rate in the United States right now, essentially full employment, which makes it just one of the many positive indicators of the US economy right now under President Joe Biden as he prepares to run for re-election. Biden said unemployment has been below 4% for quote, the longest stretch in 50 years in American history now that phrasing is a little confusing but the technically economy right. adding yeah. 209,000 jobs last month while the unemployment rate dropped to 3.6 percent despite slowing job growth president biden touting those numbers 3.4 percent its lowest rate since 1969 president biden wasting no time using the jobs number to tout his administration's economic success inflation is falling public investment in infrastructure and high-tech manufacturing and renewable energy projects are at pretty much unprecedented levels. And it all adds up to an economic program that the president himself has dubbed Bidenomics, suggesting a significant shift in economic philosophy from recent Democratic administrations that came before. So, yeah, we thought we'd try to unpack what exactly Bidenomics is and isn't. And yeah, Adam, on a a sociological level, first off, Has the Biden administration been staffed by a different group of economists than has advised other recent Democratic administrations? I mean, is America's economic shift right now representative of a shift in personnel with different economic ideas?
1: Well, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And um, there's so much sort of hype and excitement around this Bidenomics thing that we shall definitely have to expect, I think. You know, quite a lot of digging into this question. But on the face of it, you'd say it's basically what you'd expect, which is actually quite a lot of continuity. And that's how it works, right? The, you have a kind of relay race between teams of people. I mean, Trump was an exception because his circle was so unusual. But, you know, previously with the Bushes, you, you had, and Reagan, Bush, Bush, you had a, you know, straightforward handoff of personnel with some shuffling. And, and, but it's very typical in the first, you know, the first of two terms, or particularly the first part of the first term to have really strong continuity between previous administrations, and that's exactly what we got in this case. But that doesn't really mean that it's remained the same because the internal sociology of the group has definitely shifted. There's been a generational shift, and that's very important because what's happened, I think, is that the... Reuben Summers generation. So the folks that dominated and shifted the discourse of economic policy for the Democratic Party in the 1990s in the two-term Clinton presidency, they've basically either aged out or been moved aside politically. And the crucial thing here is holding Larry Summers at arm's length. So Summers was really simultaneously intellectually because of his standing within economics, his position at Harvard, his pedigree coming out of the seventies MIT circles and his role in the Clinton and then the Obama administrations is really the, you know, the person who was to a considerable extent the go-to anchor for policy thinking amongst centrists, and which is where you would have expected Biden to go. When he went there, there was such an outcry that he pulled back. And and I think that's really the decisive thing, is because with Summers' absence, the heavy shadow of elite academic ultra-technical economic discourse is removed from the scene. and That opens the door to a much more heterogeneous collection of ideas and themes and projects that have taken shape under Biden. In policy circles, in the think tanks in Washington, the whole place is just a buzz with talk about this. and We've seen a series of speeches now by Yellen, who is a con- continuity figure, Sullivan on you know, the broader Bidenomics, new industrial policy, and then Catherine Tai, the trade representative on trade policy towards China in general, that have kind of, you know, shaped what looks like a new, well, I think it's a gross exaggeration to say a new paradigm, but like a new range of thinking about economic policy and the trade-offs and the willingness to sacrifice shibboleths and holy cows, like the WTO, for instance, the World Trade Organization. But When they go out on the stump, when they're pitching Bidenomics in a more broad sense, what's really interesting is they bury all of that, because that's really an intra-democratic struggle and not necessarily terribly complimentary or flattering to the Democrats themselves, because the legacy they're trying to overturn is at least as clearly represented by Clinton and Obama as it was by Bush or Trump. But on the stump, it's all about trickle-down economics which is a phrase invented by the Democrats in the 80s to beat Reagan with. And one that, ironically enough, Obama, who at this point really is a figure that is held at arm's length, you know, himself attempted to use against the Republicans. So in the big argument with, if you like, the Republicans on, on the big stage with the American public at large, when we're talking about all the voters, and I think probably in the debates that will ensue, you'll hear the phrase trickle-down economics used as though we were debating the 80s Whereas, in fact, the real argument going on here is between the Democrats of this generation and those that governed in the 90s and after 2009. So it's, it's a, some really quite interesting sort of shadow boxing going on here. Hmm.
0: I mean, to the extent that this shift in economic thinking on industrial policy and trade policy that you've been referring to, To the extent that's been dictated by events, I mean, when exactly did the shift start? Does it trace back to the global financial crisis of 2008, or is it a later development, a product of growing rivalry with China?
1: It's like it depends what strand you look at, because it's got a climate component, an industrial policy component, an inequality component, a crisis of American democracy component, and a China component. And that's, you know, the thing that gets everyone so excited is that it's kind of an answer to the polycrisis. It's an answer to this variety of different, you know, issues, and it's all very cleverly stitched together. And the people doing it know they're being clever. And, you know, it's a very, you know, they're pretty high on their own supply, one has to say at this point. But it came together bit by bit, right? So the fiscal policy side, the dog that really hasn't barked, which the Democrats have managed to keep silent largely, and they've turned it into an argument about the debt ceiling and kept, you know, made the Republicans look silly as a result. On fiscal policy, the stimulus, which matters perhaps most to the labor market immediately, there was a huge debate after 2009 within the ranks of the Democrats about whether Obama, under the influence of Summers, perhaps just didn't do enough didn't dare to, and then there's a whole complicated argument about why, and Obama's very defensive about it. But like, there was that argument. There was the argument about, really, we need to double down on Keynesianism. That's a key thing we need to do. Also, in 2009, they learned that carbon pricing, carbon taxing, carbon markets, all of that kind of vision for dealing with climate was just not going to work, because for the second time over, a big piece of climate legislation after Clinton had failed. Now Obama failed as well 2009, 2010 is when that dies. So they begin looking for a new climate solution and all the pieces are going to begin to converge. Then you have Larry Summers in 2013 with his paper on secular stagnation, which is basically saying we need more investment. Well, hey, what could we invest in? We could invest in climate. Then you get David Orter's early work on the China, what he called then the China syndrome, which became now the China shock. That's 2012, 2013 which says the American working class has been dramatically impacted by China, who have also, of course, skewed and at that point sees the green energy market as their own and are dominating that space also in in Europe. Then you have Piketty's book coming out 2013 with the inequality story, which made a huge impact everywhere uh, and which really dynamized the debate also in the Obama administration about inequality and also its racial dimensions because Black Lives Matter begins to gather pace, the new politics of race in the United States gathers real energy. And so you begin to link those two things together. And then the pivot to Asia 2011 around Clinton, the Secretary of State, and the defense establishment beginning to focus more and more on China as well. From 2011 in the State Department, a little later in defense, because they're still fighting Afghanistan and tail end of Iraq. But from 2013-14 onwards, they're, they're really just focusing on great power competition But what really ties this all together, because these people are partisan, they're Democratic Party operatives. When they talk about American democracy, what they mean is, you know, the hegemony, the reasonable chance of the Democrats winning and holding power. What really ties it all together is the shock of Trump. It's like losing to Trump, Clinton's team losing to Trump. If you looked at Clinton's economic policy proposals, they're relatively conventional. It's the fact that they lost to Trump that really forces this group to go, oh my God, I need a new life plan. I mean, quite literally a new life plan, right? Because they queue up for office, they go into the administration, back out in the last couple of years, and then you jockey for positions in the new team. And damn, there was no new team, right? Because Trump was running the show and there was a huge crisis, obviously, at that point within the Democratic establishment. And a lot of those people go into long cycles in the think tank world. And out of that come things like the Carnegie Project for foreign policy for the American middle class. And that stuff then begins to coagulate. And then you have the serious struggle for power within the Democratic Party with Sanders running Biden much closer than anyone was really comfortable with. And so what does Biden team do? They incorporate a large part of the Sanders climate program into the Biden program. And so they neutralize, as it were, the tensions within the the Democratic coalition. A by, of course, by bringing the the VP on beside Kamala Harris, and then on the other hand, by by bringing the Sanders people in, two different camps within the Democratic coalition, and that then I think assembles you this this thing. And then, of course, the legislation that they've turned into the. The, you know, the pride and joy of Biden economics is in fact the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not written by any of them, but written by Schumer and Manchin, which is now claimed by the administration as their policy in the president's investments. And of course, everyone knows they held it at, you know, maximally arm's length, because they thought it was gonna fail and it was gonna be a huge embarrassment. So this is the way this kind of political thing works. You glue it all together. They have the CHIPS Act, which again they never thought was gonna get through. And the infrastructure, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure thing, which for which they sacrificed the left in Congress to get it through. So, you know, it's a weird, looked at closely and in real time, this thing which they're announcing as the end of neoliberalism and the new Washington consensus is a pretty ramshackle um, contraption that they've assembled as they've gone along. But maybe this is what this kind of break is made out of. I was too young to really follow Reaganism and Thatcherism with the same level of attention as I'm following this. But um yeah it's pretty it's a pretty heterogeneous collection of influences.
0: That's fascinating to trace the actual kind of consolidation over several years of these various strands. Yeah, I mean I guess I want to also ask about the flip side say of the positive claims made for Bidenomics. I mean, is the suggestion here that efficiency is no longer a primary economic virtue, or is it that higher costs themselves are more acceptable in the marketplace? I mean, the needs of consumer society shouldn't take priority anymore. And yeah, maybe just in general, I would love to sort of unpack the cliched references to the middle class that are always implicit in U.S. politics. I mean, what is the vision of the middle class implicit in the Biden administration's policy
1: vision? Yeah, I mean, the the extent to which this is still really a political creation rather than something that's come out of, you know, a coherent economic theoretic or modeling exercise is that they don't really acknowledge the trade-offs. You know, because an economic modelling exercise—if you know—if you're talking about central bank independence or non-discretionary fiscal rules or something—you know—ten different modelling teams will have attempted to estimate the trade-offs, one way or the other, and the defined optimality. They're not—that's not the game we're engaged in here. Like they tout a variety of advantages which they claim, and there isn't really—they don't really acknowledge, for instance, a trade-off with regards to the cost of living that would be implied by the efficiency term. They haven't really moved aggressively to remove Trump's tariffs, which would help to bring the cost of living down. What they've done instead, which is intelligent politically, I think, and also the statistics suggest it's important is to attack pricing power, especially for for medication and and things like that. So they're trying to work on the inside of the healthcare system to try and rebalance. They did a lot of work during the the supply chain crisis on you know expediting containers moving through LA port because they realized this was a bottleneck and it was driving prices up. They also like this idea that the more you invest, the greater you, your supply capacity is and so this will help to reduce prices in the long term. Failing that, they'll batter OPEC to see whether OPEC can't be strong armed into reducing you know increasing supply, which OPEC signally has refused to do. So they've been kind of fortunate in the sense the world economy has not recovered as strongly as people expected and China hasn't in particular. So oil prices have, have moderated considerably. They would argue the whole point of the EV campaign with Inflation Reduction Act is to make them more affordable for regular Americans rather than just kind of luxury, you know, $50,000 cars that that only the upper middle class can can really afford. Their notion of class, I mean, it crucially hinges on the labor market, but but I think it is just this sort of hackneyed, the whole thing has a real retro flavor. People call it, call it not post-neoliberalism, but pre-neoliberalism, <laughs> pre-neoliberalism, right? In the sense, the president is so old that he remembers the before times. And, um, you know, the idea with the strategy is to sort of, it is like Trump to an extent to take us back somewhere to the future. It isn't notably the vision that the Green New Deal pushed. And this isn't their choice. I think they would have preferred the Green New Deal vision, which was much more capacious, that involved an expansion of the welfare state, a focus on care economics that was not gender blind, that actually recognized the crucial role of women in the not middle class, but working class of the United States today, that recognized that the working class of the United States is absolutely multiracial and you can't think of it any other way, right? So intersectionality is not some kind of left-wing fad. It's a sociological reality if you actually want to talk about not middle class, but actual working class Americans, so the majority of the population. The middle class almost by definition ought to be a minority, but they can't say any of all of that, right? And they've backed away from all of the radicalism implied by that. And Manchin and cinema stripped out any hope there was of passing any part of that more capacious agenda. So they've left with this really trad industrially fixated, manufacturally driven program against their will. I don't think that was ever their plan. And they've attempted then to segue things like childcare into industrial policy, which is really, really fascinating. I mean, in truth, if you look at the stuff they're doing, and if you look at what American households actually spend their money on, if you go back to something like the CPI, the cost of you know the, the consumer price index nothing of what they're doing really has that much impact on it because it's fundamentally, you know, we we live in modern service sector economies. They're not industrial. So the majority of your cost of living is housing, full stop, first of all, mm. and then food and transport, and that's where their measures will impact, and energy, and that's where their measures will impact. But the, all the manufacturing side of it is a tiny part of most people's budgets right and the the real benefit will come through transport and and energy consumption but the big bits are really difficult to touch through that kind of policy and especially with the means they have at their disposal which are actually quite limited despite all of the despite all of the hype right the inflation reduction act the most that mansion was ever going to concede was half a trillion all told of which like three seventy three eighty is for energy and EV and green elements so it's a it's a, it's a. What you really have to credit with them with is an incredible success in political terms in making this as big as it is. The polling numbers are the thing they should be worried about because it doesn't translate into popularity so far. Anyway,
0: hmm. we'll take a break here, but we'll be right back to continue talking about Bidenomics. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Center for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms Public Sector Future to find all the episodes, or just search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. And yeah, Adam, clearly Biden has created a tight labor market in the US, but Is there a vision there for creating what we'd call good jobs? I mean, can those be subsidized into existence with the kinds of programs that Biden has created? Or does there need to be some kind of plan for greater productivity? And is that plan lacking in Bidenomics?
1: I mean, I think, you know, narrowly seen, the measures by themselves can't, you know, they, I mean, that so far, I think they're boasting of short of 100k jobs created. This is out of a labor force of, we've done these numbers before, right? The staggering number of Americans, 173 million or something, right? So, to do something significant in that, to create one percent of new jobs, you'd have to create one point seven million new jobs. And we are a very, very long way away from that, even in their wildest dreams. And of course these are super smart people and they know the numbers backwards and forwards. So they know this perfectly well. The manufacturing sector is smaller, it's about ten million maybe off the top. Yes, ten million jobs or something like that. So if you're adding if you're adding a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, you know, you're making a difference. But is it the same as what happened to you know the, the huge loss of jobs that happened in the early 2000s, 2010s? No, it's, it's not going to redress that. It could stabilize some individual communities. This is also a politics. What's really striking is how many of the jobs and the investment is going into red states. But in fairness to them, they do, if you look at the new, the economics of investing in America, this new manifesto they've put out, I mean, it's quite clear they have a much more capacious vision, but that is then much more traditional. In other words, it goes back to trying to improve, public education for ordinary Americans, because that's where you actually reach the children of the hundred and seventy million. It isn't by targeted, you know, investment, hugely expensive funding for one battery plant here and another battery plant there. You know, the way you really are going to change the circumstances of the broad mass is by adequately funding community colleges and public universities and dealing with tuition costs, which is why the president was moving presumably on student loans and has now been stymied. That plays very well to a core democratic constituency Um, and so they were pushing it hard they are also trying to do their best to find ways to find funding for childcare you know they're using every trick in the book they can find to squeeze that money out because that was always part of the agenda it got stripped out and they know that broadly speaking that's a probably more promising route for working-class slash middle-class America is actually to build out that part of the of the economy Um, so I actually think they've sort of narrow cast this as industrial policy by default, but they know perfectly well they really need a broader agenda. That's there, but they they haven't don't have quite the big ticket items to to sell that with. So they're somewhat caught betwixt and between. And in truth, you know, changing the qualification level and education of the mass of American teenagers and young people is a, you know, if you if you thought building out charging stations for EVs was a difficult task. <laughs> like, you know, that's a far, far more difficult problem. That social problem is a far, far more difficult one to to fix. So industrial policy looks like a an easy win, I would have thought by comparison.
0: Finally, I guess I want to take a step back and ask whether the Biden administration's policies that we've been discussing mark any kind of shift in the US system of capitalism, as we should properly understand it? Or is this just marginally changing the US government's relationship to private capital? Is private capital ultimately still in the driver's seat of politics and economics?
1: Well, of course, the the GOP propagandists will in their own, you know, extraordinarily imaginative way, you know, cook up stories about how Joe Biden is, um, you know, just awake enough to actually pose a threat to, to you know the foundational values of American society in the same way as they managed to make Barack Obama into a socialist, and you know that kind of stuff probably plays well with constituencies in Florida or whatever right who 've actually been exposed to chavism or whatever, but i mean it 's ridiculous obviously no the answer is no emphatically, no, no part of capitalism was hurt in the making of this movie right I mean like Yep, no, absolutely not. That is not the agenda. It's not the plan. Is it a rebalancing? It definitely is. It's a really interesting rebalancing. And I think I would actually, I'd kind of not quite agree that like, it's a question of whether private capital still is in the driver's seat. I mean, I think there've been moments when when private capital has been much more in the driving seat than it currently is. So to that extent, political economy is being refigured. But what I'm thinking of is less, you know, what they're touting as Bidenomics for which you can easily find industrial and business constituencies, you have to play one off against the other. And when they launched the Inflation Reduction Act, it was very interesting to see that the green industrial interests actually finally came out of the woodwork and really argued for the legislation to get it through. And that's a great sign from the point of view of sustaining change is you need capital, you need power on your side, and they, they have it now for the green industrial program. But where the relationship is much more ambiguous is foreign policy, and this is the, the you know the the element of Bidenomics, which to my mind is the most contentious, ambiguous, fundamentally dangerous. Which is the degree to which Biden economics is really a supplement to the increasingly hawkish and dramatic turn against relations with uh, peaceful relations with China. One has to choose one's words quite carefully here because it's really it's really contentious and, and difficult terrain. But what's really striking is that the, the escalation of protectionism, securitization, the focus on security issues over all other concerns in dealings with China, which began under Trump really seriously, far from abating under Biden, has in fact sort of consolidated and acquired more oomph and more clarity. And that is very difficult to square with the interests of very, very powerful groups in American business. And I would, I would suggest, in fact, historically speaking, that in relations with China, it's hard to think, and this is not any old relationship, right? This is the strategic relationship, both from an economic and a foreign policy point of view. It's very hard to think of any moment in the last 110 years since the advent of the Chinese Republic in which American business had less say, in the matter, even perhaps during the period of like Cold War, you know, Albania-style separation between the two and no contact. But during periods of relatively close contact, whether in the interval period where dollar diplomacy ruled, or since the 1990s, or even since the 1980s, you know, business interests were always absolutely at the centre of it. To the extent that they would appoint business, I mean, America appointed. You know, folks like Paulson to be Treasury Secretary in the 2000s under Bush, specifically to manage the China relationship, specifically because he was well-connected in China, because he was a banker who'd done business there. And like that's completely unthinkable now. Right? You need a clean hands. You need a stark separation. You need demonstrably to able to show that, in fact, business interests will not shape this relationship. They still matter, as Yellen's at pains to point out now, making, I think, increasingly problematic, you know, series of statements, they still matter, but but only up to a point, and they aren't decisive. And that's, that's really quite striking. So we are seeing a shift in the agenda, a shift in doctrine, but not accompanied, if you like, by a kind of serious social democratic drift, but something where in a sense, foreign policy hawkishness, in fact, dominates the scene.
0: Got it. Okay. So yeah, there's a kind of shadow here that I suppose we're ending with in Bidenomics that doesn't always get acknowledged. But yeah, we have to end here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum, and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Tooze at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us, that's at pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.